This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Want to save 10% on your next DukeTigBrand.com order? Use the promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much I love DukeTig Brand. I use their Excel notebook, I use their waterproof notebook, and absolutely swear by their products. Go to duketigbrand.com right now, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and save 10% at checkout on your next order. From apparel to logos to coaching notebooks, DukeTig Brand has got you hooked up. DukeTigbrand.com, promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. In season two, episode 27 of the On the Touchline podcast, I talked to Jason Collinsworth. And Jason has a long and successful career uh, in the world of coaching. He is currently the owner of Playmaker Training in Western New York, in the Buffalo area. And I will tell you more about Jason in just a sec. We're coming down the home stretch of the On the Touchline podcast, and you will get new episodes uh, that will take you to about roughly 30 episodes for this season until the end of July. So that will leave you with about 60 On the Touchline episodes that you can go back and listen to. And if you're new to the show and you've never listened to this podcast before, but actually highly encourage you to go back and check out the work and sort of the evolution of the show from season one to season two and some of the really high quality guests that have been part of this podcast. I think you'll like what they've had to say on previous episodes. You can find this podcast on 12 different podcasting platforms. So places like Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and of course, Apple Podcast. So I want you to stop what you're doing, go to Apple Podcast right now, leave a five-star rating and a brief review about the show. We'll take you no more than 30 seconds to do that and helps more and more people in the footballing and soccer community find out about the podcast. And of course, I love when people reach out and connect on social media. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at SoccerCoachJB and highly active on both platforms. So a little bit about Jason Collinsworth. Since 2004, Jason's coaching experience is spread across all levels of the game within the U.S., He's won high school state championships in his home state of Michigan. He's coached at the highest level of youth soccer in the ECNL and the Development Academy, the DA. And he's also coached at the NCAA Division I level at the University of Detroit. Most recently, Jason spent time as the second assistant coach of the Western New York Flash women's professional team, which played in the NWSL. There's two things that drew me to Jason. Like many of the guests, almost all of the guests that have come on this show, I have followed them and followed Jason on social media for a while now. He's not afraid to give his opinion 
and give you a, a very authentic and genuine look of how he approaches the game. His underlying philosophy is to help players build extreme confidence through improving their technical ability. And without advanced technique from each player, advanced tactics cannot be introduced within the team structure. So you may or may uh, agree or disagree with Jason's philosophy on the game. But the point is, is that this podcast exists so we can have conversations just like that and that we may all see the game just slightly differently. I hope you enjoy episode 27 and my guest, Jason Collinsworth. Jason uh, Collinsworth, thank you for for joining the the On the Touchline podcast. And um, I've been following your work for a while, man. And I'm glad we've had a chance to... uh, to connect for, uh, you know, virtually. And so I always start with the question of, I think it's important for listeners to know your backstory and sort of how your coaching journey, uh, got you to where you're at today. So you can start wherever, uh, you know, wherever you'd like, um, from your youth days to, uh, you know, uh, present time, but, uh, curious of, of how you got to where you are, uh, you know, in your coaching journey. Uh, well, it's, I, it's, my coaching journey started uh, back in Michigan uh, when I was about 19 years old. Uh, and I came through the ranks. I coached at, you know, every level where middle of the road clubs, uh, clubs that are just starting out. Um, I've gone through Mertens with other clubs. Um, found was lucky enough to have uh, some pretty good mentors. Um, so, I mean, where do I begin? Other than youth club, uh, my real experience started at uh, a school called Detroit Country Day. Uh, and, I, and I got to work with uh, some legends um, in, in the state of Michigan. And that, that opened up so many doors for me to get involved in ODP, uh, NCAA at University of Detroit. And I also got to work um, at Vardar uh, with the Development Academy teams and the ECNL teams. Um, then in about in 2015, I got a job with the Western New York Flash here in Buffalo, New York. And they played in the NWSL. Uh, Sam Lewis and Abby Dahlkemper were on the team at the time. Uh, and I was a second assistant, kind of, uh, I was a goalkeeper trainer. And when I got to Western New York, I realized the youth system here was so far behind where it is in Michigan. And for the, for the longest time, I've always done side training and I've always done um, some personal training and small group training. And when I re- realized that, how far behind Western New York was, I really found that my focus wants to be with the youth and and technical development. Uh, I used to always want to be an NCAA like head coach. When I coached in the NCAA, I hated it. I always wanted to be a pro coach. When I was able to work with the pros, I hated it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I think it takes, a lot of coaches like self, self like 
self-awareness um, to know what you want out of the game and, you know, where you're, where you're best suited. And I feel like I'm best suited with, with young players and trying to, to help develop them. That's it. I love, uh, so you said the word mentorship and that comes up from, uh, from time to time on the podcast in terms of, you know, I've been fortunate to get connected to, you know, a person that I really look up to in terms of coaching mentor, but take me back to those, um, you know, those coaches or, or people in Michigan that, that had a big impact on you, especially as your, uh, you know, development as a, as a young coach at the time. Um, Detroit country day. Um, these guys between the, uh, the boys and the girls programs there, they had won 20 state championships by the time uh, that I got there. And, and they just, before that, I was, you know, I was 21, 22 years old and I was scared. I, I like, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew the game. I was always a student of the game, but I didn't know how to coach. And what I learned from, what I learned from those guys is that you can demand a lot from players and you can, you can push players. And I learned how to coach top players because a lot of, a lot of youth coaches, they kind of take it easy on their back. And I can, I, I think I can measure coaches, coaches by watching them interact with their top players. Like, like if the top player does something that's, you know, below their standard, are they hearing about it or do they let it slide? Because that, that, that player has a, like a license to kill. And, you know, those guys just taught me pretty much just, it gave me confidence because I was, I I had multiple jobs at, at the same time. And what I took from them, I would take to my club team. And, and I would know that, you know, that I, that I could push players and demand a lot and have a high standard of players and, and to coach every single player on the roster, not just coach, you know, there, there, there's a big problem here in Western New York where coaches are either one of two things. They coach or they coach to the bottom of the group. And there's no, I I haven't really seen a a coach that can get everything out of every single player and where every player feels like they're coached. A lot of times I'll work with players um, and I'll ask them, okay, you had training yesterday with your clubs. Were you coached? And they'll they'll always, a lot of them will say, no, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even addressed. I wasn't, I wasn't corrected. I wasn't told that I, that I did something well. I didn't, I wasn't told that I did something wrong. Sometimes these players feel like they're not even there. So now wh- with what I'm doing is I do all supplemental training. I, I am just a supplemental soccer trainer. I feel that I work on things that clubs don't work on and their clubs work on things that I don't work on. So it kind of, it's a good mesh. 
for especially for the players that are super consistent over the last uh, uh, four years, five years since I, I got here in 2015. Take me through. Um, you mentioned the uh, the NCAA and the the NWSL. Um, for for folks listening to this, in terms of they may be wondering what that experience or those experiences were like, and I'm curious. Um, you know, I, I feel like we're we're similar in some ways, uh, Jason, in the fact that, um, you know, there I, I sort of create this idea in my head of like, man, I want to get to this level, and then you get to that level, and it's like, oh, <laughs> like it wasn't quite what you envisioned it, right? And Absolutely. I'm. I'm I'm wondering what that was like, um, you know, because we have a sort of a, a very wide range of, of coaches and players and, and people in our game that listen to this. But, um, you know, for someone who hasn't worked uh, in an NCAA environment or an NWSL environment, um, you know, what that actually looks like for you or, or did look like for you on a day to day basis. The, the one way that I always explain it to people is that it was the first time I felt like soccer was a job. Mm. that that but like the club atmosphere i loved um the, the you know high coaching high school i loved but when you when you get into ncaa and nwsl it's a job and it's and it's it's so far removed from what and this goes for players and coaches. That level is so far removed for why you got into the game in the first place for me. And, and, and it wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't enjoyable when I looked at it, like it was great to work with high, high level players. Um, and, but when it comes to the commitment and how much time and the, really the politics too, it's just, it's ramped up ridiculously, especially with the NWSL. And it's just enjoyable for me anymore. Cause it, it's like the higher up you get in coaching, you're not coaching. It's like, if you're, most of your time is spent on a on a on a tell on a phone call with parents, and you're not doing the one thing that you wanted to do is coach, and teach and teach the game. So, but coaches that I worked with in the NCAA were great, and it and I enjoyed that the the relationships that I built through through that experience. And NWSL was completely different, um, and uh, it's it's sketchy. Um, what went down here and with the Western New York Flash and stuff, and I mean, a lot of it's well documented, like through Carly Lloyd when she played here. And I'm not going to get into any specifics, but um, it could be a toxic environment at times um, for the players, like. I'll just give this one example. The, the allocated U.S. soccer players that play in the NWSL are are given this this. Um, I guess it's a you just basically it's just a piece of paper and, and you write down your three top destinations where you want to play, 
and you write down the three at least where you want to play. Every single allocated Western Europe flash as the number one place that they did not want to go. Every single one of them. And it wasn't because it's in Buffalo, New York. It's It was the toxic environment, and everybody knew about it. Alex Morgan called called it uh, a godforsaken place. It was wow. sketchy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty heavy. And there's a lot in the U and U.S. soccer. I mean, there's shady backroom deals that go on uh, with those players, and it's just uh, that environment. I, when I opened my eyes and saw. What was going on? Like, I don't want to be at this level. I don't. So now I'm the happiest I've ever been doing what I do now, you know, because I'm just teaching. I'm just teaching the game. Uh, and it's just about soccer. It has nothing to do with anything else. So what uh, so tell, tell folks listening to this um, a little bit about what you're doing now and um what what makes a good coach in your mind? Uh, well, right now what I'm doing is I am just supplemental training where uh, players will come to me for hour long sessions and we work completely on technical skills, but it's not step overs and scissors and Maradonas and stuff like that. I don't believe those are skills. I think those are just moves that look good on Instagram. Um, but I, I really try to focus on closing the gap between a player's uh, weak foot and strong foot. It's a lot like a, like a team that, if the gap between your top player and your bottom player is huge, that team's probably not going to be very good. I relate that to players too, that if, if the gap between your good foot and your bad foot is huge, you're probably not going to be a very good player. And it immediately adds confidence to a lot of players. Um, and that's one of my primary focuses is I want them to be able to solve problems 360 degrees. I don't want them to, you know, there's a lot of, top players that you can tell that they don't want anything to do with their weak foot, even at the, even at like the NWSL level, it's bad. Um, and I just tried to, you know, solve those little problems, but what makes a good coach? I think, I, I really think that to be a top, to, to be a really good coach, you have to be able to relate to players. You have you have to have a relationship with the players that, look, I'm going to coach you, but it's because I want to make you better. It's not because, you know, it's, it's not because you suck or anything like that. But, or, or, you know, I see a lot of coaches that kind of drive the bottom players out of the game because no coach likes to cut players I've noticed. And so what a lot of coaches will do, and this happened in Michigan a lot at my old club Vardar that some of the coaches would treat the bottom half of the roster so poorly, just in hopes that they didn't come back the following year. 
And when I, when I saw that, that was another thing that I thought, Oh, I need, I want to go to this big time club that wins national titles and ECNL and all that. And then I got there and I'm like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was either. You know, but to, uh, what makes a good coach? That's you have to coach every single player and you have to uh, trust. I would say like you have to build trust with your players and you have to trust them and you have to try to allow every single player on your team to feel like they're contributing. Cause a lot of players, uh, a lot of players don't feel like they're contributing. In my opinion. You know. I think that's a, uh, a really good answer. And I think that, um, you know, too often, uh, and you touched on this a little bit that, it's easy to coach players if they're they're really talented, um, or you can spend a lot of time with the players that sort of need to get up to a certain level. But there's sort of a, a group in the, in the middle maybe that might get lost. And you gave the example of uh, you know, did you hear from your coach during the training session, or you know, did you feel like you were connected to to what the coach was saying when you were coaching, um, you know, in a in a team environment. Uh, Describe how you sort of envision the game being played uh, or maybe a, a philosophy on the game um, of how you would like to see it played. I, when it comes to like the, the pro coaches that I, that have had a deep impact on me um, was Anson Dorrance. I loved his style of play. I loved his style of play where always on the front foot, always taking players on confidence. And he always looked, for confidence, confident players on the ball. He's always looking for a one-on-one take on artists like Tobin Heath. Um, and I would say that's how I envision. But I also, like, I believe that one, you can't have advanced tactics without players with advanced technique. I, I, I truly don't believe in the whole um, pattern play before technique I, 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 there's a way to do both um, within the same system, but I, I, I truly believe that it's the player's game. And I want players that are all comp- I want 11 players that are confident on the ball. We all have seen goalkeepers that are scared of the ball. And that's a mess, especially at youth soccer. Right. So, I mean, not to, I mean, what's the U S women's national team known for? playing pretty direct, but they also have those players that are just take on artists. They're going to Rapino and, uh, and Alex and, and Tobin Heath, you know, I thought Sam Mewis played great today. I saw your tweet. I thought, I think Sam Mewis was probably the one of the, probably the best player on the, on the field for the United States today. Yeah. She, um, she seems really comfortable, uh, in the midfield. Yeah, I think yeah. It's a really good tournament yeah. overall. Um I think she's she's been strong. So um you had mentioned before about uh you know maybe when you in, when you arrived in western New York and realizing that the you know the the football and soccer scene was a little bit different than what you'd experienced in Michigan. And I'm curious, you know, when you do a side-by-side comparison 
um, you know, what did you notice that was a, a little bit, you know, different? And I say that from my own experience, um, because I, I always tell, you know, folks here in the Pittsburgh area that, you know, there, <laughs> there is life outside of Pittsburgh, believe it or not, people that, uh, you know, they have to venture out and they have to see how the game is played in other parts of the country. And that it's good to see how our teams stack up or, you know, philosophically sort of where we're at um, in terms of what we're trying to do. And I wonder what that was like when you came from Michigan to, uh, to Buffalo. Um, one, it, it was a little bit of a time warp. It, it was, it's, it felt like 1995 Michigan when I got here in 2015. It was players could dual card, meaning they could play for two clubs at the same time. Ooh. They had, yeah, they had, um, they have no rules in place for like poaching. So like Michigan, I don't know how Pennsylvania is, but Michigan, if you're under contract with that club, you cannot like a coach cannot contact that player's family at all, or else you'll get fined and potentially kicked out and lose your uh, sponsorship in, in the state of Michigan. Here, we have coaches that will try to lure players over by photoshopping the player's picture into a team photo and they'll um, text it to them. That's, wow. the stuff that, uh, that's the type of stuff that goes on here. But it's also, there's, it's, so there's three clubs. There's Western New York Flash, there's Empire, and there's GPS. Okay, and that's what they call Premier here. Everything else is travel, which is basically just volunteer coaches. And it, it, it's volunteer coaches and parent coaches and guys that have never played the game before. And it's a very, very low, low level. And where in Michigan, you have the Michigan Hawks, who's won several ECNL titles. You have Vardar and Wolves, who've both won DA national titles on the boys' side. And those clubs are within like two or about 30 minutes from each other. And what you have is you have so many feeder clubs that are actually, that are pretty good that feed into those, those national programs. And here, every, everybody that I've trained has played for multiple clubs and almost everybody has played for all three clubs. And that's, they only have three spots to go. They don't, they don't go back to travel to the travel clubs. They just hop, they just hop between the three clubs. And it's just, and I, and I always, some of the flash guys that I work with are like, Oh, we, we could turn into a national house. Like we, we could be the next Michigan Hawks. And I'm like, no, you can't. No, you can't because we don't have the, we don't have the player pool that's being developed by others. There's not very many clubs that develop U8 to U18. Like Vardar, where I was before, there was a U18 DA team, and there was only four kids that were on that team when they were 10. Only four. So where are all these kids being developed? They're being developed at other clubs, and then they jump. Here, what's, what's trying – 
what's happening is that these these three clubs have to develop everybody, and there's just not enough soccer here. There, there, there's not enough soccer here. And and to touch on your point, how about how there's life outside of Pittsburgh? Spot on, absolutely spot on. I have told players, I'm like, look, you are a regional, you're special regionally. You're you're special in Western New York. I drop you in the middle of, if if, if I dropped you in, obviously California and Texas, but if I dropped you, uh, if I dropped you in Kansas City, you could not, you you wouldn't be able to compete. If you in Michigan, same thing. So it's, I mean, and people just need to open their eyes, you know, and, and realize that there's not enough soccer here. There just really isn't. There's not enough opportunity to play, and there's not enough coaches here either. There's, I have players that have had uh, six coaches in the last um, 18 months. Because oh. nobody stays, and nobody stays, and a lot of them are foreign, are, are, are foreign, and they honestly they get deported, or they they have visa issues or whatever. So it, it's it's a problem, you know, and, and 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 a lot of a lot of stuff around here seems like stepping stone type stuff. Like they want to go work for the Flash, and then they don't stay. And in two or three years, they're going to a college job or whatever, you know. It's just a bummer, but I'm trying to help fix that. But well, it, it seems see, that uh, Western New York and, and Western PA are, are somewhat similar. Um, when I, uh, in a previous job, I would always travel to Western New York for, for different things. And there were a, a ton of similarities in just the... Uh, the socioeconomics and sort of the makeup of um, the people that I would interact with. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me. And I, I think we're probably on the same page that um, you know, I think locally here in the Pittsburgh area, we seem to be pretty decent at developing kids to be able to play at the collegiate level. But when you said that if you, you know, you're to take a kid from, from here or from Western New York and you're to, you know, sort of parachute them into a, a big time environment, Kansas city, you know, California, Texas, wherever. Um, I, mm, I think they're going to struggle and I think they're going to struggle for playing time. And there's this sort of regional mindset, I think of, you know, if, if you grew up here, you develop here, you go on and play college here, you know, you've made it in essence. And, and that's not to say, you know, for anybody that has done that or anybody listening to this, that that's a, a criticism. That's a, a, you know, a very nice achievement. I just think that um, we can get very localized to realize that, like, <laughs> there's a great big soccer country out there and that our best may not be someone else's best. And there's someone else that is probably a little bit better, a whole lot better, um, you know, in their development in you know, I, I think back to even how I got into coaching, right? Um, you know, it was, it was a volunteer grassroots, um, you know, local community club. And, and this goes back a few years, but there weren't many people there that even had a baseline of soccer knowledge. You know, their their moms, their dads, their people that are just trying to support their son or daughter. That's great. 
I think that's fantastic. Um, however, I think there needs to be sort of at least a, I don't know, a minimal <laughs> level or uh, some sort of understanding of like, what are we trying to achieve? Um, you know, here's a, is a coaching community. So um, I'm kind of ranting there, but uh, so yeah, you're, um, you're preaching. I mean, it's, it's you're, yeah. So where do you see this going uh, for you, Jason? In terms of my my training company and everything, yeah, want, it, yeah, it could be that, or um, you know, getting back into the team game, or there. I want to change the narrative of one v one training or one on one training or private training. Um, a lot of it is well, you you, you need a defender and 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 whatnot, but like. When Sydney LaRue was at, at the Flash, okay, so, and this had, a, this had a huge impact on me. So we had a team full of rookies, and it was Abby Dahlkemper, and it was Sam Mewis as, as the leaders. And, and Sydney LaRue was with the national team, so she wasn't there yet. Sydney LaRue come, uh, or so Sydney's not there, and Whitney Yangen's not there. Those were the only two national team players that we had at the time. After every single session, players would just leave, right? Players would just leave. They'd, they'd go to ice bath. They'd go back home. And, you know, and their day was done as soon as they were dismissed. Then Sydney LaRue comes. And then Sydney LaRue would always get me or the other assistant coach to work with her just on, on, on finishing. And all she wanted was, you know, pass to us, lay it off, basically a passing line. She would do that for like a half an hour. She would do it for a half an hour after every single session. About three sessions in, the entire team started doing it. And they started just working on the individual part of the game. And that really told me or taught me how pros train. Look at, look at every single sport. We have golf, right? What, how, how do golf, golfers train? They do the same action over and over and over again off of it, you know, at the range consistently until they have it down. Same with, same with uh, tennis players. Roger Federer and his backhand hits 600 backhands every single Clay Thompson was said to make 200 shots in a shoot around before he was allowed to leave. You see basketball workouts all the time. You see NFL wide receivers running the same route over and over and over and over and over again at repetition. But when we try to develop soccer players, especially you soccer players, we roll out a ball, we put a little bit of restriction on, and we say, okay, keep it away. It doesn't make sense. I, I think technical repetition is, is missing in 90% of – our sessions because I think think about it think about when you played think about when it what and I always talk to my players about this that have you ever gotten yelled at for missing a shot oh yeah all the time how often do you work on that same shot how often do you work on that on, on finishing and they're like, well, we do it maybe, 
you know, once every few weeks. Some players tell me that they don't they don't work on finishing at all. And if they are working on shooting, it's from outside the 18, where most goals are scored from inside the 18. Most goals are inside of 12 yards. And so we never even like work on finishing inside of 12 yards. And you wonder why we're so bad and we can't score a goal. And the funny thing, going back to the Sydney LaRue thing, that following game, she scored the goal the exact same way as she was working on it in in, in training. And it's and it just clicked to me that these kids are not spending enough time on the ball and mastering just the simple stuff to get it done. Like I, somebody tweeted out a uh, a a video of Manchester City's U12 team and they were building out of the back, but half of the balls were like little chips. And that's something that I work on all the time with both feet. I want just a little chip. I want it up and I want it down only going about 15 yards and just nice texture on the ball. And some of these kids don't know their skill level. So when I explain a drill to them or show them, they're like, Oh, I can't do that. Three, three rounds in they're they're hitting it every single time. And I'm like, you don't even know what you're capable of because everything is so team oriented everything is tactics based that these kids don't even know what they're capable of on the ball. So my role is allowing kids to know you're pretty damn good. You're pretty damn good on the ball. You, you can do a lot more than you, than you think you can. And that's when confidence just shoots up for, for a lot of these kids, but it's also in their club environment. Do they have the license to do that stuff? You know, I, uh, I worked with a college player, and we were doing some chipping. So she's doing, uh, she played semi-pro last, uh, last summer and she scored. She's one-on-one with one the keeper and she chips it. The coach is like, why the hell would you chip? She scores. And the coach is like, why the hell would you chip it? Why don't you just slot it there? And the girl's like, I scored. It was a great goal. It was one of the best goals I've ever had. And the coach is just like, it's just little things that just keep on just, annoyances just drives me nuts just because there's so much more to the game and it's i mean i don't know i'm talking in circles but they can they but they they can do a maradona (laughs) exactly exactly And, and like oh my god yeah and i would I'll be doing like a 1v1 drill and I'll have a parent to say, do a scissor, do a scissor. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think Messi goes at players and be like, I'm going to do a scissor and then I'm going to pull it back. No, it's just reacting. Mm-hmm. It's just reacting. And, and a lot of people have been qu- quoting the Cruyff thing where, uh, where he developed that move. He's like, Oh, that was just a reaction. It wasn't, it wasn't planned. It's like, bingo it's but but a lot of the i i really i truly feel that kids need to develop that like engram the the uh, croatian development curriculum talks a lot about just developing engrams and doing things repetitive repetitively over and over and over and over again so then you can do stuff on the field without even thinking 
there's a player that I work with that he did some sick move to get to get by somebody, and I'm like, that was one, that was a hell of a move, and he was like, what move? He didn't even think about it, right? It just happened, and so many of our kids are in this one and two touch, play it simple, play the way you face, get it to such and such. And then that kid is allowed to take everybody on. I say, why not everybody? Why isn't everybody given a coach the same way and, and given confidence and a license to kill? That's what, that's where I love it, man. It's, uh, it's refreshing to hear, I think an opinion that um, that's going to challenge uh, some of the listeners, and I wonder, you know, if, if it's a, a coach or, or players or um, you know people that you've watched or interacted with, how is that sort of version of the game? So I'm hearing, you know, problem solving. I'm hearing uh, confidence. I'm hearing repetition, um, which I I love all those things, by the way, because I I'm like, man, we're we're speaking the same language here. Um, you know, does, does it come through trial and error? Does it come through, um, Hey, I started as a, as a coach that kind of looked like this, but you know what? Like, as I tell my wife, you know, I feel like my, my thinking has really evolved when it, it comes to the game and how I see the game now looks different than five years ago. And that comes through repetition. That comes through scenarios that comes through just you know, this repeated action and to be a coach and to be a, a somewhat effective coach, like you have to do it. You can't read it. You know, you can read about it in a book, you can watch videos, whatever, but you have to do it. Like you got to go out and you got to kind of screw up. And I'm wondering for you, like, was it players? Was it coaches? Was, you know, uh, is there a team that you follow, um, you know, that uh, sort of had that impact on you as a coach? Um, It was a it was a, another mentor um, that really made me think of the technical side of the game, and he he basically started a club that I worked for, and this guy had worked with like Brian Mazenoff and coached um, uh, Kerry Savagnin, some big some big time players uh, back in Michigan, and and I we actually coached a, a like a freshman high school team together. And all the players just could not like trap a ball. So, so I got to watch this master coach turn a team that could not trap and pass and to a team in relatively short time in like two or three months to where every kid was, I wouldn't say confident on the ball, but so much more confident. And it was just, it was just him and, and once I saw that, I started going to this guy's like every single session. I went to every single session that I could just to watch. Like I didn't go and assist. I just wanted to observe this, this, this guy coach. And he had a, a major impact on it. It's about the players. It, it's, it's again, you can't have advanced tactics without players with advanced technique. And, we've all had teams where we have some really good players and then we have some holes and it's Tom Beyer, Tom Beyer used to always talk about how, how he, how he fixed Japan or how he helped fix Japan. And he would always talk about the gap 
the gap between your bottom players and your top players. And the closer that your bottom is, the more that will push the top players. And I agree with that 100%. But so many of these kids are being left behind because it's all about, I want to play DA. I want to play ECNL. I want to play college. And that's really where my, you know, philosophy philosophy came is because a lot of these kids are being left behind and it sucks. And that's why, I mean, that's why we have a dropout rate. We have a dropout rate at like 13 and 14 years old because they realize, you know what? I'm not that, that good. And, and they don't want to do something that they're not good at, you know? hundred uh, percent on that. Um, I mean, that's part of why I walked away from the game at a, at a young age. Um, you know, uh, and just exactly it's, it's anything in life. If you feel you're not proficient, competent, have a level of confidence when you do it, you're going to find something else. And, um, yeah, I, so, you know, maybe, maybe good lead in into, um, the question that I ask a lot of guests that come on the show, Jason, in terms of, you know, uh, what, what are we doing right? And what are we doing wrong in this country when it comes to soccer? And that is a loaded question. <laughs> holy, holy cow. I think it's a culture war. I think it's a culture war. Um, when you look at, when you look at like men's international teams, all these kids or all these players had fathers that played the game, had mothers probably played the game had grandfathers so it was so so like my family were, were huge kansas city chiefs fans i was just back home in michigan and we were talking about the chiefs we never my mom i had to beg her to turn uh the france game on i called her i'm like you got to turn it's extra time she's like i hate women's soccer i can't watch it hmm. culture war when when Players are, are, are sitting around the breakfast table and talking about games and talking about, oh, I can't believe Pep did this or I can't believe he started that. And that's like ingrained in the culture. Here, I have to beg my players to watch games, especially girls. I had a girl, I had a girl last week. I, I asked her, I go, hey, you've been watching the World Cup? She said the same thing that my mom said. She's like, I can't watch women's soccer. It's like wow. what? It's it's like it's the U.S. Women's National Team, and we can't have a, a young girl who's a pretty good player. She can't stand watching soccer, and it's just it's a big time. It's culture. It's it's what are we doing right? What are we doing right? Uh, you know what? It's not the coach's fault. Like a lot of people want to like blame youth coaches and, and, and youth soccer. It's like there's there's good youth coaches. There's very good youth coaches. It's not the coach's fault. There's a reason why Christian Pulisic has turned out how he is. And it's because his dad was a professional coach and a professional player. And his mom played. His mom played with Mia Hamm in high school. That's a, it's like a perfect storm. So that kid is started. So like Polisic, he, he played for uh, a guy that I worked for uh, at ODP, but it, he, 
was one year where Pulisic was in Michigan and he played for the Michigan rush and just it's a, he, he started with a ball at his feet at 18 months. Quinn Dempsey didn't start with a ball at his feet until he was, until he was six. Messi, same thing as Pulisic started at 18 months. So it's a culture of what you're born into and, and what's around you and is the game ingrained in everything that you do, or is it something to meet friends, um, get you outside, exercise? Because that's what's that's what most that's why most players started playing soccer. It's not because they loved it; they didn't even know what it was. My first, my very, my first game when I was six, I was wearing football cleats. My dad had to get a pocket knife and cut off the front stud because the ref wasn't going to allow me to play. I also, my, my very first game, that game was before my first ever practice. And so it's culture. Whereas the, the kids that are born into it, they would dr- think about a kid. If I played against a six year old that was from England, that kid would just dribble circles around everybody because they'd be so far advanced. So I think it's just a, it's a long game and it's a, and it's about time and it's and it's about stop pointing fingers at you know I I hate the USSF for a lot of what they do but it's it's not even their fault like it's truly it's not even their fault I think it's just it's our culture and I mean everybody will say it we have basketball, we have baseball, we have football, we have other things that take it away. And I think that skews how soccer players should be developed too. Because we, we're always looking for the biggest, fastest, strongest players, right? And, and you know, one of the, the best player in Western New York He's, 50, he's 14 years old. He's about five foot. And he's, he's pound for pound, he's the best player. But he would never get, he would never get a call up for, for a national team. You think Messi would have uh, gotten a call up here? <laughs> if he was 5'7"? I don't know. That scares me. I mean, he's, it's changing. And, and that's slowly changing, but. He's no Jossie's artist, so I don't know. I mean, you know that messy guy. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Scorn yeah. his face. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that I mean, but I remember. Remember, uh, what was it? 2000, 2010, maybe. Like everybody hated Josie Altador too. Everybody mm-hmm. would rip. Everybody would rip on Josie. And now it's like, why isn't Josie playing? He, you know, over you know Zardes, and it's the exact same yeah. thing. It's the exact same. Yeah, thing. Uh, I, I, I think they're the same player personally. I I don't disagree with you, and it. I I don't know how Altador became sort of this, uh, you know, uh, national treasure or something like that. It was. It just. It seemed I, like it. But... It happened overnight, and it happened in what? What World Cup did he get hurt in? And everybody was like, oh, our, we're screwed. I think it was 2014. And, yeah. he got, and he got hurt in, like, the first game. He pulled his quad or whatever. And everybody, like, it was, like, panic city. I'm like, wait a minute. Since when was he, like, 
our best player. That's how they, that's how they treat him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he looks like he yeah. could play uh, middle linebacker for the Bills or for the Chiefs, right? you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, another guy is uh, Jordan Morris. It's like, dude, stop bench pressing. Yeah. He, he He's a big boy, man. It's like, name an outside of like um, Hulk from Brazil. Outside of him, name a foreign player that is built like Jordan Morris. Yeah. There's not a lot. I, I noticed that over the weekend. Um, they're doing some interviews with him or whatever, and I'm like, dude, like, <laughs> get out of the weight room. <laughs> I I mean, exactly. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have to obviously have some level of physicality to the game, but you're exactly right. I mean, you look at any European player, I mean – I don't know. I just, I don't see it in terms of, uh, you know, trying to build American players to look like they could play American football. <laughs> exactly. So uh, exactly. Oh, good. And, and then, and I hate, I hate that. I hate that quote. What is it? Oh, well, um, well, if only our best athletes played soccer. It's like, oh, what? <laughs> I, I don't want LeBron James on the basketball court. I don't, or I, I don't want LeBron James playing soccer. Sorry. Yeah. I, I hate that. So and to you, be honest with you, what's the women's excuse? So like, let's say the women don't win this world cup. Are you saying that? Well, all of our female best athletes aren't playing. You can't use that excuse with them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I hate that. I hate that. I hate it when people bring that up. If people want to uh, connect with you, Jason, and follow along in, in terms of what you're doing, and um, or if they live in Western New York and, and get connected with you and your business, uh, go ahead and uh, and let people know how they can find you. Um, first and foremost, my my website, playmakertraining.com. Um, and you'll find everything on there. My email address is playmakertraining13 at gmail.com. And... I do, uh, I, I do a lot on YouTube as well, um, but I don't do like I, I'll post drills and stuff that I, I do, but I, it's mostly me just talking about like situations that come up. Like I'll, I'll train with like a notepad or a, like a little notepad on me, and if something, if a player says something, I'll be like, you know what, I need, to, I, I need to talk about that. So I have like 170 videos of me just talking about like my training philosophy or something like some type of thing that I heard that's going on at a player's club. And then I like, how would, how should coaches deal with it and stuff like that? It's mostly for coaches, but it's play, it's parent and player advice. And that's also just um, playmaker training on YouTube and, and you'll be able to find me. Very cool, man. Well, uh, Jason Collinsworth, thank you for coming on the On the Touchline podcast. And Thanks for having me. Uh, re- really enjoyed our chat, man. Glad we've been able to get connected. Um, big, yeah. fan, big fan of your work here. And, uh, Same. If, Same. Uh, you're, uh, well, thank you. Um, if your, your travels ever bring you to Pittsburgh or if I'm ever in Western New York, I'll definitely look you up. A big shout out to Jason Collinsworth for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. 
Really enjoyed that conversation. And I've included a link in the show notes of how you can connect with Jason on social media, but also learn more about his uh, business, Playmaker Training. So go check that out. All right, guys, coming down the home stretch is season two. So look out for the remaining episodes uh, coming your way very, very soon. Make sure you reach out on social media at Soccer Coach JB on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like something from the show, please be sure to share it out on social as well. I'll catch you guys real soon. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.